0: The Jewish views on life for migrants in Calais, how the situation in the jungle has seen rabbis and imams come together, how to win a debate with an Israel hater, author Dr. Mike Harris tells us how, and how Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis hopes the Mayan course will get Jewish women serving their communities.
1: First, with a roundup of the Jewish News this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A Cabinet Office Minister is to unveil measures to prevent boycotts of Israel by councils and NHS trusts in Britain. Matthew Hancock is on a visit to Israel, where the details are set to be announced, making it easier to take legal action against those behind boycotts. It's also been reported that the measures could apply to universities and student unions. The German Chancellor has called for Iran to recognise Israel. Angela Merkel said it was the only way relations with Iran could be fully normalised. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, on a visit to Germany, was at her side when she made the announcement. He thanked her for her leadership and emphasised the values that Germany and Israel share. Mrs Merkel also said Berlin is ready to help with any steps Israelis and Palestinians can take to achieve a peaceful coexistence. The Chief Rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has launched an ambitious programme aimed at getting highly qualified Jewish women to serve their communities. It's an 18-month-long course which will have three parts. One will concentrate on the laws of Jewish family purity. Another will be an academic course focusing on women's health and related medical issues. And a third, taught by the Chief Rabbi himself, will concentrate on ways to innovate adult education projects for United Synagogue Communities. The former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert has begun a 19-month prison sentence for bribery and obstruction of justice. Mr. Olmert, who's 70, was shown on Israeli television walking into the Masiyahu prison in the centre of the country. He was originally convicted nearly two years ago in a wide-ranging case that accused him of accepting bribes to promote a controversial real estate project in Jerusalem. And finally, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts has given Angel's Costumes the Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema Award. The Jewish family business, which is based in Hendon in north-west London, has been going for 175 years. At the ceremony in the Royal Opera House, Chairman Tim Angel told the audience the recognition from BAFTA was wonderful. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport.
2: Thanks, Vivian. Crisis talks to discuss the future of Jewish football have been held, looking to address the worrying decline in numbers of teams, which have halved since 1999. A series of ideas and proposals were put forward to the management committee, including unlimited substitutions, midweek fixtures, changing the format of the league and setting up a new junior feeder league. On the pitch, Scrabble's relentless charge to the Division 2 title saw them win their 16th straight league win while All-Eyes this weekend will be on the two semi-finals of the Civil Annexing Cup, as FC Team A hosts North London Raiders A, while Hendon A entertain Oakwood A. And finally, Real Madrid striker Cristiano Ronaldo has received the backing of the Anti-Defamation League after he was attacked on social media following an appearance on an advert for an Israeli cable company. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at
0: www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of the Jewish Views podcast. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of the Jewish News. Joining me is Justin Cohen, the news editor, and online editor, Jack Mendel. Well, thank you both. What are we going to start with? I reckon the front page is the best place to start. Justin, what have we got on this week? Phil, I must say that's very original, Start on the front page, yes. Yeah,
3: sorry, I <laughs> tried to be original. <laughs> Um yeah so we've got a story about uh, some new guidelines that have been issued by the government to tackle boycotts an increasing problem really of, for de- delegitimization in the UK I would start though by first saying what this isn't. Some of the reports I think have suggested that this is uh, new legal steps being taken by the government to actually uh, ensure that boycotts can't happen. Uh, It's not that. This is simply new guidance, new guidelines, a two-page document that were issued by the cabinet office minister Matthew Hancock during a visit to Israel. To basically say there are existing legal obligations under the World Trade Organization agreement that members of that organization shouldn't be boycotted and Israel is a member of, of that organization. So really this is something that applies to local councils. NHS trusts and other public bodies. So it's very valuable at a time when there is increasing delegitimisation in this country.
0: But of course, there are some out there who would say that if this has been around for a while, why has this not been brought up sooner? I mean, fair enough, it's better late than never. But it does seem a trifle odd that we've had to wait what feels like forever with threats of boycotts, certainly since summer of 2014, just to, to finally get this to the surface.
3: Yeah, I think the boycott campaign really has been alive and well in this country for a lot longer than that. I think really this is just trying to put a line in the sand. To be honest, I don't expect that this will suddenly stop any moves at boycotts from local authorities or from other organisations in this country. I think that's highly unlikely. This is a reminder
0: that if you are going to boycott, really you you risk legal action. Sadly, I suspect that you may very well be right in the sentiment there about not managing to stop this. But anyway, let's move on to the next story, which is about London mayoral candidate Sadiq Khan. He's obviously representing the Labour candidacy. And I believe that, Jack, you've been speaking to him this week.
4: Yes, uh, on Wednesday, I uh, met Sadiq Khan at the offices of the CST, where he was being shown around. And uh, he gave me a really candid interview, where he spoke about his former life as a human rights lawyer, Um, He's been an MP since 2005, but before that he represented what he said was some unsavoury characters and some people who hold views that made him feel deeply uncomfortable. He was very, very clear throughout his interview that he has never hidden the fact that he was a human rights lawyer and that these views that he represented once upon a time don't represent his current views. He also spoke about tackling extremism and tackling anti-Semitism. He said that people who want to spread hate shouldn't be let into the country and that hate preachers should not be on campus and that the rise of anti-Semitism was deeply distressing and upsetting.
0: Well, on that note, because of his Muslim background, I believe that he said that he could relate to some of the issues the Jewish community has to go through on a daily basis and that it made him more understanding.
2: I've been the victim of racism, I've been the victim of, you know, faith hate. So I understand some of the things that the Jewish community is going through. Everyone could be empathetic, but I've walked in the shoes. I know what it's like. To me, it's personal.
0: So as you can see, I, I think that that would certainly imply that he is all in favour of multi-faith London and that he absolutely will not tolerate any racial hatred of any description. Was, was that the impression that you got when you spoke to him?
4: Yes, I think he was very sincere in his views and I think the Jewish community has responded to him in a way that perhaps they haven't done uh, with his conservative opponents at Goldsmith who has got a a lukewarm uh, reaction from the community I think most people feel.
0: And also somebody else who's got at best a lukewarm response was of course the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn of which he also spoke about and also I think he refers back to the time when Ed Miliband was leader, and possibly understanding the reason why Jews maybe haven't voted Labour in recent years in the way they once did.
2: I accept that the Labour Party, you know, is not the, in the last two elections, the the, the, the natural place where Londoners of Jewish faith have placed their vote. And so that's why it's really important for me to spend time understanding the issues, talking to the Jewish communities, listening to them as well.
0: So there you go. Well, that's Sadiq Khan. His full interview is obviously in this week's paper. Now, from one... Labour story to another Labour story. Justin, what's this about a Labour club that's got itself into a bit of bother? The Oxford University Labour Club has been dominating headlines,
3: really, both in the Jewish media and the nationals through much of this week, following the resignation of its co-chair, Alex Chalmers. He he stepped down, actually, after the university voted to endorse Israel Apartheid Week on Monday night. He said that, really, things had been deteriorating for a while and he felt that a good number of members Members of that club and also left-leaning members of the university as a whole had a problem, some sort of problem with Jews. These are quite startling, quite a bold claim. So, absolutely, and 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 it was after that that those claims were actually further backed up by the Jewish society there that published 24 hours later a list of allegations from people that had approached them in the wake of the Alex Chalmers resignation with further accusations about that club. Now. Obviously, we spent much of the summer looking at the left of this country, uh, the left part of the Labour Party, and how they seemed to treat, or parts of it seemed to treat, uh, anti-Semitism perhaps on a lesser level than other claims of racism. That was during the campaign of Jeremy Corbyn. There was concern about the way some of his supporters approached anti-Semitism. And this is really, you know, reigniting that whole row, that whole focus on the left of the Labour Party and, and to its credit a Labour Party has now uh, backed the investigation launched by Labour students into the Oxford affair. I think we'll now have to really wait for the results of, those, of that investigation which I understand they're trying to complete very very quickly. The other question, of course, will be whether this is the tip of the iceberg, whether other Labour student bodies have this same kind of problem. But I have to say as yet, I understand there have been no allegations coming out of other clubs.
0: Well, it certainly is distressing to read anything of this description. And unfortunately, the fact that this has made such main news this is not yesteryear we're talking about we're talking about in this day and age it just feels like a story that you would have expected to read a long time ago but not necessarily now so here's hoping that the Labour Party will indeed get themselves together and and sort out and stamp out any concerns that the community may have let's move on to the next and final story from this week's paper roundup and that is oh dear anti-semitism in football not entirely a shocker anymore I have to say I didn't know whether to laugh or cry
3: at this story. It's one of my favourites of the year so far. Basically uh, on Monday there were a series of tweets from the press officer at the Bahrain national football team which drew attention apparently to an Israeli that was heading the campaign of one of the candidates for FIFA president, Prince Ali of Jordan. However, they appear to have got confused by the, with the fact that there was a Shimon Cohen who played for the Israeli national squad in the early 60s with another Shimon Cohen who isn't actually very far from this office as we speak, who is the founder of the PR office, a PR guru who actually heads Prince Ali's campaign. And yeah, I mean, it was clear that they were trying to, to mischief make by drawing attention to Israeli nationality of the head of his campaign. But actually, they got completely
0: the wrong person. Shimon Cohen was born in Wales. Well, for some reason, the only thing that seems to go through in my mind is hashtag oops. I think that's all we've got time for, for this week's pay per But thank you both very much indeed to Justin Cohen and Jack Mendel. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London from various outlets and you can also read the e-edition online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, barely a week seems to go by at the moment, where in the news you don't hear one story or another regarding the desperate migrant situation that seems to be happening right across Europe. And none more so than in Calais. The refugee camp set up there, also known as The Jungle, has recently been visited on an interfaith outing between rabbis and imams. And journalist and colleague of this show, Jenny Fraser, went along with them, and I've spoken to Jenny this week to find out more about it. I started by asking her to tell us about the exact purpose behind the visit.
5: A lot of Jews have been to visit the Kala refugee camp, including a lot of progressive rabbis. There's never been a visit that's taken place which has included orthodox rabbis, and they chose to do this in an interfaith delegation, going with imams, whom many of them knew personally. They've worked on interfaith events with them before because they wanted to show that there was an across-the-board religious voice to talk to the refugees.
0: And so the idea was to go to the refugee camp that has been set up in Calais. I think some nickname it rather horribly the jungle. You were there yourself. What sights did you see? What was life like? Is it as grim as people portray it in the news?
5: It's about as grim as you can possibly imagine, and then some. You approach the the jungle, as it's known, walking past a chemical works. So there is already the disgusting smell of chemicals as you get close towards the opening of the camp. And in some ways, that rather masks the general smell of sewage and rotting rubbish that on an ordinary day, would have been arising from everywhere we walked. However, the day we went was not an ordinary day. The weather was absolutely appalling. Howling gales, there had been driving rain, so there were huge puddles all over the camp, making where we were walking just a sea of mud. And it was absolutely freezing the terrible thing was, as, as we were immediately aware, that we could get on our minibus and leave and go back to Britain and they couldn't. This for them is the end of the line.
0: Could you describe some of the living conditions that you witnessed? So perhaps if you were to see, say, a family all huddled together, I assume that they must have been in some sort of man-made shack is the best way potentially describing. How were they living?
5: Well, There is a separate family area. The people that we saw, for the most part, were only young men. There are women and children, but they're living in a separate area and we didn't get to see them. What we saw was, if you can imagine, a very, very wide avenue of mud, basically, on either side of which at the opening of the camp are lean-to makeshift wooden structures, some of which have been turned into little shops with all kinds of donated stock that people have sent in from charities. But then once you get, I suppose, about to 300 yards into the camp, what you're seeing is tent after tent made of the flimsiest nylon squares of material tied together with inadequate string. And basically, these tents just wouldn't keep out a cough, much less the howling gale that we were standing in. In some of these tents, maybe five or six people will be living at a time. In others of the tents, you'll have 30 or 40 young men living at a time. And they're grouped together in the countries that they've come from. So you get Kuwaiti Bedouin you get Iraqis you get Eritreans Sudanese there were very few Syrians in the camp although we did expect to see a lot more
0: you see listening to you recall this now and although this doesn't necessarily work so well on radio watching you recall it now I can actually see even in your eyes that you are visualizing everything that you are telling me as you relive it Were you given any warning or any heads up before you went there? What you were about to witness? Was it as bad as you imagined? Or personally speaking, was it worse than you could have envisaged?
5: I knew it was going to be horrible, but I didn't realise quite how horrible it was. When we went into one of the Sudanese tents, for example, we were standing on a collection of broken wooden duckboards, crates cut in half and turned upside down for people to stand on. And at one side of the opening of this tent, there was an enormous collection of broken bits of wood as though it were being collected for a fire, but we knew that couldn't be the case. What they were being collected for was so that the people weren't actually sleeping on the ground in the mud. I had some idea of how bad it was going to be because I'd read quite a lot about the jungle. Whether the rabbis and the imams had any idea how bad it was going to be, I'm not sure, but certainly. They were horrified, absolutely horrified to see people living in these kind of conditions. What kind
0: of reaction did you get from the rabbis and from the imams that were there? Have they pledged anything based on their respective religions, saying that they'll do more to help? Have they said that they're going to try and encourage their communities to get involved in whichever way they can? What did they say? How did they react?
5: Well, certainly the imams, for example were able to go into, there are some tents set up as makeshift mosques, and they were able to go in and pray with some of the refugees. When we were trying to assess a reaction on the way back, both the rabbis and the imams were very clear that a religious voice had to have something to say To challenge both the British and the French governments, that people could not continue to be allowed to live like that. And I think that although people don't want to take political viewpoints, they certainly want to have a voice across the faiths, which will say something to both those governments and urge them to try to do more to help the refugees.
0: See, time and time again, whenever refugees have come up in conversation on this program and previous incarnations of it, the one thing that has always cropped up is the parallels between our ancestors fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe. And now, And now, did you, obviously none of us, thank God, in that position to witness that, but did you get an understanding of what life could have been like all those decades ago and, and did it remind you of that or, or was it not even in the headspace when you were there?
5: Of course, that that was the thing which was, was echoing in the head of every single Jewish participant on that delegation. This could have been us. This could have been us. And certainly Rabbi Avram Pinter from Stamford Hill spoke about why he was there. He said that an elderly relative of his had escaped after the war from Europe and had made it as far as Calais, where he encountered an Allied soldier. And he begged this soldier, I don't know where this man had come from, but he begged him for food. And the soldier's response was, get away from me, you dirty Jew. And Rabbi Pinter said that this had made the most tremendous impact on him and that he wanted to ensure that such a thing never happened again to anyone. It wasn't a question of doing it as a Jew, it was doing it as a human being. And I think that that was a very profound sense from everybody on the delegation. It spoke to the most human part of us all.
0: We're sitting in your very nice flat in northwest London. And, and so, of course, now life is back to normal for you and potentially for the people that were left behind at, quote, the jungle. Life may never be the same again. What what will you personally take away from your time there?
5: I think it was eye opening. I think that it's certainly too easy to skim over some of these newspaper reports and just flip on to the next story which is easier to read. I think that I can do the little that I can by writing about it and talking about it and making other people aware of the conditions. And whatever the rabbis and imams choose to do, I very much want to follow the story. And really, we shouldn't ever have a jungle on our doorstep.
0: Journalist Jenny Fraser talking to me there about the time she spent on an interfaith outing to the jungle, the migrant camp in Calais. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by presenter and voiceover artist Jeremy Jacobs and Ahuva Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. And they'll be talking about Israel and in particular tackling boycotters. Plus, Diana Tomen will be speaking to President of the United Synagogue, Stephen Pack, about the Mayan course, launched this week by Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis. Now, it seems all too often we hear of one notion after the other to boycott Israel and goods produced there. But how often have you come face to face as someone who questions the Jewish state and not necessarily known how to put across the other side of the argument? Well, Dr. Mike Harris may just be able to help you with that. He's written a book called Winning a Debate with an Israel Hater. He's been speaking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton. Kate started by asking Dr. Mike why he wrote the book in the first place.
6: I've been talking to audiences around Northern California for over 10 years, educating them about Israel and about the history and about the facts that they really don't get from a casual reading of newspapers or watching television. And what I realized is that there are so many people who do support Israel and understand that it is a cause certainly worth supporting, but that they don't have enough information to be able to respond to many of the lies put out from the other side. For example, that Israel is, uh, quote unquote, an apartheid state, or as another example, that five million descendants of Palestinian refugees from Israel's war of independence have a right under international law to return to the areas they used to live within Israel. So if people support Israel, but they're not able to respond to these lies, that's a problem. And then the other thing that I found out was that a lot of them are unfortunately feeling that really incredibly important works like Alan Dershowitz's The Case for Israel are too daunting for them to pick up. And I said, well, I can really provide the same information to them, at least the uh, the core of that information, in a way that might be a little bit more accessible and something that they might be more willing to pick up and read.
7: Who are these haters? I mean, is it sort of casual haters in the street or... Are people likely to encounter them on campus? What What's in your mind? Who Who is the typical person in your mind? Who is the hater?
6: Let me define this as well a little bit further. You know, what I term an Israel hater is not someone who has disagreements with specific policies uh, or actions of the government of Israel, but someone who essentially at the core believes that there should not be such a thing as the government of Israel, because they don't believe that Israel has the right to exist as the state of the Jewish people. So that's who I'm talking about. And unfortunately, We do see many, many groups organized around this principle on campus. You have a group called Students for Justice in Palestine. You have groups in the community, such as the badly misnamed Jewish Voice for Peace. And you have groups such as American Muslims for Palestine. And, of course, you have similar groups in the UK as well. And these are groups that are very, very well organized. And they are, unfortunately, rather relentless in their determination to present lies and misinformation about Israel.
7: The idea is in the book to encourage a debate. You don't want a sort of hectoring monologue by the pro-Israeli supporters, probably the Jewish protagonist. Do you want a debate? Do you want to encourage a debate? Is that right? Or do we want to just actually just get the facts out there and, and, and silence it?
6: Well, the whole idea of a debate is because people may find themselves in this situation, whether it be on campus or whether it be in the public square. I'll give you an example. About a year ago, I was going shopping at my local grocery store, and there are some people out front who are collecting signatures for an initiative for an upcoming election to ask the government of California to institute an Israel boycott. So you can come across these people in all types of settings. And the point of the debate, as I make in the book, is not to change the minds of these people. You are not going to get them to go, oh, my gosh, I never thought of that. And then Mm -hmm. they're going to fold up their table and go away. The point is to be able to reach the other people that are around who are going to listen to the conversation and who are maybe going to hear a point of view that's a little bit different from what these haters are out there promoting.
7: You're absolutely right that you're never going to, if someone is absolutely stuck on it, and for whatever reason they are Israel hater, usually, well, dare I say it, because they're a bit anti-Semitic, you're rarely going to hear, yeah, that was a, that was a great point. You know what, I think I'll change my mind. Now I understand that. And it probably is the, the fence sitters. But who is the typical person who would come across with these aggressive anti-Israel comments?
6: Well, again, you know, certainly members of those organizations. And these people do take their arguments out to public. On campuses in the United States, every year you have these events that are entitled Israel Apartheid Week, when you have horrific lies and propaganda presented against Israel. And Certainly in our area, Northern California, which unfortunately is a real center of anti-Israel activities, you will see these same people organize activities in public off campus as well.
7: Do you tend to find that the people who are anti-Israel in America are the similar types of people who are anti-Israel elsewhere in the UK or, or elsewhere in Europe? Or does there seem to be something specific going on in the US that, that you're addressing
6: I'm not sure it's necessarily that different. You have what has been sometimes termed the uh, red-green alliance, where you have extreme leftists on the one hand who, more likely than not, are secular, and the green component being people who do support radical Islam, and somehow, even though they can disagree on many other things, they do find common cause in hating Israel.
7: And turning to the book itself, what's the sort of style and tone of the book? Is it questions and answers? How are you getting the information across?
6: The key thing with the book is that it's designed to be something that should be very, very accessible because it does have some mild satirical humor in it. Basically, a way to help keep the information a little bit memorable and a way to keep the book moving. I don't know who the counterpart might be in the UK, but I describe it you know, over here as if you took Alan Dershowitz's The Case for Israel, coned it down to its very key points, and as it might be presented by the satirist Bill Maher. What
7: you're saying is it's just much more easy to read. Not that Alan Dershowitz isn't easy to read, but for a certain audience, it may be a bit inaccessible.
6: Absolutely. And I encourage people, you know, right in the very beginning of the book, I tell them that when they're done with this book, they really should go read The Case for Israel. or They should read Dr. Mitchell Bard's Myths and Facts because this book is simply meant to be a starting point for them.
7: And when you were writing the book, how did you choose the questions that you wanted addressed? Did you do some research? Did you find that the most common things that people will address or pick up on, the Israel haters, that is, and try and address those? Or did other people say, look, we really need some answers to these questions?
6: No, uh, What you said was exactly right. You look at the key points that the other side tries to make, and a lot of them are based on a fictitious reading of international law and a real twisting of the meaning of human rights law. And so they build a lot of their arguments on those. So it's very, very important to take those key points and to go ahead and really dismantle them so that people understand how to respond when these points are raised out in a different setting.
7: There really is such ignorance still out there.
6: Oh, absolutely. And misinformation and almost. That's what the other side takes advantage of. You know, when the other side says, you know, it is international law that these refugees have a right to return, you have to know how to respond to that. You can't really just say, mm. well, no, it isn't, you know, and yeah. not have any reason to be able to support that statement.
7: Do you find that sometimes you net these things down and it's just naked anti-Semitism?
6: Well, I actually devote an entire chapter in the book to that called Is It Anti-Semitism? And, you know, not every anti-Zionist is an anti-Semite, but every anti-Semite is an anti-Zionist. And it's very important, though, that people on our side not conflate any criticism of Israel or all criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. There is a time and a place to label your opponent an anti-Semite, but it needs to be used appropriately.
7: And when one engages in these debates, if they've done well, could there ever be a winner of the debate? Is there something that some kind of resolution at the end of this conversation? Or do you normally find they fizzle out? Or does somebody actually say, I've had enough of this? How does the debate end?
6: They will always fizzle out in the end, but the winner is the one who is going to be able to make most of an impact on the people who are watching, listening in. And the same thing goes online as in person. You know, if you look certainly the way we look at it here in the States, there's going to be a core group of people who support Israel. There's going to be a smaller group, fortunately, of people who absolutely oppose it. And a much, much larger group that isn't really paying close attention to the issue, except when it's brought to their attention in a big way. And that is the audience for these debates. And if you can make a positive impact on that group, then essentially you have one.
7: Do you recommend that we should always engage? If you hear someone saying something awful, is it better sometimes just to walk away? Or do you think actually engage and knock that on the head with some facts, some knockout facts that are going to just... Um, It depends.
6: It really depends where you are. And, you know, sometimes these can turn into very, very heated discussions. We do, unfortunately, on our side, have to watch out for considerations of personal safety. But quite honestly, if it's just you and some folks from the other side, and there isn't going to be an audience of that 80%, there isn't really very much point to spending your time engaging that person. It's really only gonna be valuable if there's other people of open mind and reasonable intellect who are going to be listening to that conversation, whose point of view you can affect positively.
0: Dr. Mike Harris talking to Kate Fulton there about his book, Winning a Debate with an Israel Hater. And if you'd like to obtain a copy, then just do a search for it in your favourite search engine, and it's bound to come up. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Now, a new course has been launched this week by Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis. It's called the Mayan Course, and it's a groundbreaking and ambitious programme aimed at getting qualified Jewish women to serve their communities. Well, community reporter Diana Tomen has been finding out more for us, and she's been speaking to President of the United Synagogue, Stephen Pack. She started by asking Stephen to tell us a bit more about the scheme. The chief
8: rabbi, Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, came up with the title, Mayan, and he's put in in, in his little brochure, which is available online for people to see, that it comes from the word mayan, which is a fountain or spring. And he felt that was very appropriate. I think there are sort of overtones of Miriam there with, with water from the well, and Miriam being, of course, one of our very important foremothers, if I could use that word. He also makes the point that the, the mayarat ayinayim, can be contracted to Mayan, which is effectively giving us the same translation as fountain or spring. So that's where it comes from. And I think it was meant to be something which people would identify on its own merit as being something new and different from whatever has been launched before.
9: And the course?
8: The course. The course has three main components. The first one is the Halakha of Taharat Hamishpacha, which I'm happy to explain in a bit more detail. This is family purity, it's often translated as, and how families work in terms of the women's cycle. I probably don't need to go into more detail on on that at the moment. And related issues. The second area of the course is women's health and related medical issues. And the third one is community education.
9: One thing that strikes me right away is... This course has taken about a year to come to its fruition, I gather. Have you had much opposition from what I might call the diehard traditionalists in the US?
8: I don't think we've had opposition. I think what we have had is a lot of very helpful input from a lot of people who wanted to get it right. Right. And because it's something new, it's very important that it, it it is right. It's not the first time something has been tried within our community because a lady you may have come across, Lauren Levine, has been doing something very similar at Shul for many years. But this is trying to expand the program in a much more significant way. So I think it was very important, the Chief Rabbi wanted to get comments and input from the dianim and from various different aspects of the community to make sure that it's something which just has the right balance for for our time.
9: Right. If we could concentrate on the three components, the first thing that struck me was that the first and second components, which deal with women's health, fertility, IVF, that sort of thing, sexual health particularly, We have in the new component, the new structure of the course, trained academics taking the place of what I would call extended family members. In other words, in days gone by, would this information and support not have come from grandparents, mothers, grandmothers particularly, mothers rather than a trained academic?
8: Well, I'm sure you're right that grandparents parents and so on would have been very helpful here and still can be so this isn't meant in any way to usurp the position of family members but what is recognizing is that these are complex issues and complex areas of halakha and our life today and that people who want to get a deeper knowledge of it that they may not have had from their parents and grandparents have the opportunity to study in more depth and to be able to increase their knowledge, and I think this is, uh, if you coming back to the to the three areas of the program, the first one is is going to be led by Diane Simons, of, of our London based in here. He will be teaching the Taharat Hamishpacha, and I think it's true to say most of our grandparents probably wouldn't have had anything like the level of knowledge that Diane Simons has on these things, who who is, is a, a Diane and studied for years on these matters. Interestingly, the women's health one is going to be taught mainly by the UCL Institute for Women's Health, ah, and and that's very interesting because I think that what that brings in is again another layer of deep expertise that you know you wouldn't necessarily have had from your family, and just to complete it, the the, the third third aspect is going to be taught by the Chief Rabbi himself. So community education is something that he is very very keen. That's what he describes as his pet project, doesn't it? Absolutely. Could
9: I ask you, then, just one more last question, unfortunately. Five to ten graduates spread over, quite thinly, I would suggest, a cluster of synagogues, it says here, presumably mostly in the most overpopulated or heavily populated Jewish areas?
8: Well, I think what's happening is that the, the, the chief rabbi has said, we welcome applications, and we'll see what applications we get, both from Rebetzons and indeed from, from ladies who, who are not Rebetzons, but wish to participate. And I think if there is a call to expand the programme more rapidly, I'm sure we'll do that. I think the feeling is we need to have a critical mass to, to make it work,
0: but we'll see what level of demand there is. I think there's going to be quite a high demand. President of the United Synagogue, Stephen Pack, talking to Diana Toman there about the Mayan course launched by Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis this week. And if you'd like to find out more information, as Stephen was alluding to earlier on in that interview, you can go to chiefrabbi.org.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me this week is presenter, The Voice, Jeremy Jacobs, and a Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. The subject for this edition is based on the news that we heard a little earlier on about Israel, and how the government has threatened legal action to those who try to boycott it. Now that's obviously aimed more towards organisations and councils. But the question is, how can we, as community members, go about trying to fight the good fight for the Jewish state? Ahuva, as someone who comes from Israel, how do you go about putting the case across for your homeland?
11: Well. I think I'm trying to be truthful and objective. I think that the healthiest thing is to criticise when criticism is due and praise when praise is due. So if we say that everything, that the state of Israel, the government and the official bodies there are absolute whiter than white, that's an abnormal situation. So I think one should learn the subjects and criticise and praise when it's appropriate.
10: You know what I think, actually. I think that anti-Israel is another way of saying anti-Semitic. I'm not sure that it really is just anti-Israel.
12: It's a way of getting at the Jews. It might be very tough: You're in good company. Martin Luther King also said, "When you're talking anti." Zionism, you're talking anti-Semitism. He did. He did. He was pro-Zionist and he believed that anti-Zionism was absolutely anti-Semitism and he was very much against it. And I think the problem, there's a big problem. David Cameron a couple of years ago said that the anti-Semites are creating what he called a fuzzy line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And to be honest, I don't think there is a line there anymore. I think it's just the valid way of being anti-Semitic. It's as simple as that. In my opinion, it is, really. Do you agree with
11: that, Nova? No, not at all. I mean, anti-Zionism is not equated to anti-Semitism. And in any case, I think that anti-Zionism is a little bit outdated. Where do you see Zionism now in Israel? What is the entity that you called Zionism now in Israel?
12: But I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? That Zionism, what it was, is completely different to anti-Zionism. Not, obviously, they're polar opposites, but what people see as anti-Zionism now is not against Zionism. In my opinion, the mass society sees it as a way of attacking Israel, ultimately attacking the Jews.
11: Yes, so the terminology needs to be anti-Israel or anti-the government, the policies of the government. You cannot be anti-Zionism if you cannot define what today in the 21st century is Zionism. It's something that was relevant when the state was established. And it's just fallen by the wayside, and it's kind of new terminologies has got to be addressed.
10: Yeah. Jeremy,
13: you're being very quiet. Look, anti-Zionism, as far as I'm concerned, is just that well, Zionism is a, is a, has been hijacked by a certain, mainly by the left in this country. And, is, and I agree with Adam completely here. It is a way of having a go at Israel and having a go at the Jews, as we've seen in the past few days. Israel is a liberal, is a functioning liberal democracy, right? So it's surrounded by an organisation in cahoots with Turkey, maybe not, which is turning the Middle East into a slaughterhouse. So you have problems there, you have problems in Jordan, you have problems in Iraq, and yet all we hear from the left in this country is how disgusting Israel is. I'm sick and tired of it. I've put up with this nonsense for 30 or 40 years now. You know, it's enough. We can call it anti, anti-Zionism, anti anti-Israel. To me, it's anti-Semitism. Isn't, I'm in accord with Adam. Isn't Zionism just the right for Jews
12: to have a homeland?
11: Yes, which they do. They do have the homeland. Because the question... the
12: anti-Zionism isn't refusing the right of Jews to have a homeland. It's refusing the existence of Jews. It's refusing them the opportunity to sell product, to export
11: product. That's that's not Zionism. The product is related to the borders of Israel. So the borders of Israel are debated. So we have to be very, very precise. We cannot just say they object to the products of Israel. The territories are still not Israel. It's, uh, they want to annex it, but there is no agreement. There is no agreement that this is Israel. It is in every paper, it's referred to as territories, and it has got a different law than the law in Israel. So you see, one shouldn't blur the lines. This is where I call, I don't say that I'm honest, I'm quoting other people. One has got to be honest to the truth.
12: I do hear what you're saying, Hoover, but I think what was anti-Zionism historically is not the same as present-day anti-Zionism because Mm -hmm. I think it's been so skewed that now anti-Zionism is almost a legitimate way of attacking
13: Jews. Yes, I agree.
12: It's yes, because then people
10: can say, hopefully, I'm not being anti-Jewish, I'm being anti-Zionist. But of course, they probably are being anti-Jewish.
11: Did you experience any anti-Semitism which was expressed as anti-Zionism? Did you experience it yourself? I have. Which is very interesting for me to hear.
12: And it's very much on social media where I find anti-Zionism... And people start by expressing their feelings about the unfairness of the treatment of the disputed territories. But as the diatribe flows, it's just an attack on the Jews and everything they do, their existence. I mean, my issue here is it's definitely a phenomena that's growing, but I don't know what to do about me, it. What, what do we do? What do, let, we, me, do we, let me tell you,
10: there is a well-known broadcaster, I shan't name him he's a good friend of of mine (laughs) funnily enough but he always says to me i know you're jewish but it's not really the jews that i feel bad about it's the zionists and i know that what he's really saying is you're different from the other jews it is the jews that he's anti he would be very upset if he thought that i i thought he was anti-semitic but he is and he uses this it's this other way of saying anti-Zionism because it makes it it's quite different according to
12: him, but it isn't? But if anti-Zionism, if it isn't anti-Semitism, then why, when the troubles in Israel flare up, why do Jews all over the world become affected by it negatively? I'm not an Israeli. Most of the Jews in Britain aren't Israelis, but anti-Semitism rose as soon as people disagreed with what Israel were doing. Huh. Now, how do we separate? Because clearly they have merged. How do we separate? I don't know whether do you can, Adam. I don't mm.
13: know whether do, you can at all. What concerns me, taking the, the conversation a bit further, there's all sorts of problems going on in Malmö at the moment, in Sweden. You've got large in, in influx of, of people from Iraq and from the disputed territories and elsewhere, settling in Sweden you know, and elsewhere in Western Europe. You know, what's going to happen in the future? You know, I mean, we're sitting here in our little comfortable studio in north-west London, Who knows what's going to happen in in the future with if more and more people, displaced people from the Middle East, settle in this country as immigrants? That's what concerns me. Mm. Concerns all of us.
10: But at the same time, a great number and Israel keeps keeps it quiet for obvious reasons. But a great number of refugees from Syria have been settled in Israel. Well, how many? Oh, great number. I well, can't give you well, the number. 500, 1,000, 10,000? I really about, don't that? know the number, but I know that there are,
13: because I've been told it from very good sources. It was also in, yeah, okay. in Jewish newspapers. Um, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it's a, good, it's a bad thing. Of course, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. What I'm saying is there is an element of people who from those areas who, will be, who are settling in, in Western Europe, as we have seen in Belgium, in France and elsewhere, Germany, possibly here. And any future, future in the future, they may cause trouble.
12: Uh, the vast majority, from you have to yeah. say, have a very legitimate right to be refugees and to be ah, accepted oh, into an, our societies. That's an interesting
13: one. That's However, an, that's an interesting one. A, li- a legal right or a legitimate right?
12: A human right. Okay,
10: a human right. Just think back to the to the time when when the Nazis were
13: throwing Jews out of out of Europe. I don't. think You can <clears throat> compare. I don't think. You of can course,
12: compare.
6: you
13: can compare it. Well then, why don't these people go to Saudi Arabia or Algeria or other 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 parts of the Middle East? That is a very interesting question. It
12: doesn't doesn't or, you know, stop what i saying is right, mm. but that is another. Well, I come issue altogether. Why come here? Why
13: do I want to come to Western Europe? In fairness, the life is probably a better life. Yes, I, I think it probably is. I would and,
12: I uh, would like to go back though to what Hoover said mm. earlier, which I think tackling anti-Zionism is something you said about how. And, and it's so true. And my experiences on social media arguing against anti-Semitism and anti zionism showed this so, so clearly that when I just showed support for Israel and their actions and their right to defend, I was attacked left, right and centre. But as soon as I said, well, I don't actually agree with what Netanyahu says about this mm. or I don't believe that the Israeli government should have done that, mm. then people were on side more. And I think that's a very...
11: What, what the people
12: were on? People who were attacking me for supporting Israel. As soon as I made the point that I don't agree with everything that the Israeli government mm. does, they were far more open. Mm. And I think you're right. It's mm. that dogmatic Israelite, Israelite I think, yes. is quite dangerous.
11: I, I, I think it is. If you chop it up to segments, and for instance, today the very question is... Do you always shoot to kill if somebody threatens a soldier? If a a young girl with, with scissors threatens a soldier, do you always shoot to kill? And that's a very, very important debate now in Israel. And what is interesting, because it's about 36 since the beginning of the year, Palestinians have been shot. So... Eisenkut, the chief of staff, said that we should really go slow on that. And he quoted something from the Bible, that means the one who stands up to kill you, you get up first and kill him. He said, this is not what we want to do. So we thought that he's a lonely voice, but then came alone who is the Minister of Security in Israel, and said, I stand by Eisenkot. I stand by the Chief of Staff. So you see, this is good. This shows that it is a country of law, the same as the country of law who put a president into prison and a previous prime minister in prison, A country what, open a, to introspection. A co- yeah. Absolutely, yeah. a country that wants to stay democratic has got to be a country that adheres to the laws. Whether you want it or you don't want it, otherwise it will be a lawless country, and we really don't want. Israel has got to shine, and this is the way we will shine.
10: In other words, to be a light, a lighter to the nations
11: not a light into the nation. I mean, a democratic country in the Middle East I mean, it, with all the, what it, what it and means. It shines already. I it mean, shines already. has beacon in the Middle East. It, 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 sh- it really
13: is. It shines already, Hoover. I mean, they're, but, just gotta, they're just going to continue doing what they're doing. I don't know what else you can do. You can't. You, you, Israel cannot be responsible for what is happening
11: no, on but, but the other are, side of its borders. No, Jeremy, but there are factions who say no shoot to kill all the time. So what I was saying that this debate is a debate now and a debate which really comes very, very closely to what we are talking. It's always re-examining itself.
10: That's, I'm afraid we're going to have to end the discussion because our time is up, but it's a very interesting point of view. So my thanks to our guests, presenter and voiceover artist, Jeremy Jacobs, and Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North
14: London Masorti Synagogue. A verse from this week's Torah portion to has long puzzled me. Aaron the high priest wears garments with stones on his shoulders carved with the names of the children of Israel. He carries zikaron, he carries them as a memorial, al upon his heart when he comes near to God. And yet it strikes me that we do have names we carry on our heart, especially when we try to come near to God. Family, people we love, people alive we're concerned about and people after whose death we remember with love. But there's also a further dimension to it. Perhaps we carry the names from those we have some clear or even implicit and general responsibility. Our communities, our people. This week... I spent two days in Greece with World Jewish Relief, whose work I very deeply admire. One day in Athens, another on the shores of Lesbos, learning how refugees come ashore from the water, and those, thank God, who've escaped drowning are then helped out of their life vests and prevented from getting too cold, taken by buses to where they register, and then go on to Athens for the long journey to try to find a new home, a future for their children, free from war, violence, and destitution. And the question which I ask myself is, do I carry the names of a portion of humanity for which the Torah tells us we have a responsibility? V'ahav temet hager, you shall love the stranger, for you know the soul of the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. How am I carrying that upon my heart? These stones... They're of different kinds and degrees. We have a a first responsibility to those we love and beyond it to our people, but also beyond that, to carry the names of humanity on our heart. And if we don't, we don't really bear the name fully of human ourselves.
0: Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish Views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jenny Fraser, Dr. Mike Harris, Stephen Pack, Jeremy Jacobs and Ahuva Cohen, who were on the schmooze. And of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of the Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part-recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.